This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Welcome to Leadership in Action on SiriusXM Channel 132. I'm Ann Greenhall. And today, I'm flying solo. My dear colleagues and co-hosts, Mike Useem and Jeff Klein, are off for the day. But we have a special treat because, in fact, we have our guest in studio, which makes it even more fun. And she leads an organization, a museum, visited by over 500,000 people, and that is the Please Touch Museum. My guest today is Trish Wellenbach, and she's in the studio, so I'm going to start right away and welcome you, Trish, to the studio. Oh, good morning. I love being in studio, as they say. I do, too, because it's a face-to-face conversation, which makes it a little bit more... Uh, it gives the potential for a little bit more lively discussion, which I know that we will have today. So as we like to do, let me say a little bit about the Please Touch Museum and uh, just to get our our listeners uh, ready for the conversation. You're the executive uh, chief executive of that organization, and you were brought in to help steer it through some tough times, including bankruptcy. So I'm looking forward to talking about that. But today's focus is going to be mainly on the future of the museum and the new 2020 mission statement, and that is change a child's life as they discover the power of learning through play. And as part of that goal for today, we're going to hear some details about a project that just began at the site, a $1.7 million renovation of the lower level of the museum with a focal point being a 20 by 40 foot exact scale model of the 1876 Centennial Exposition that has been in the basement, <laughs> in the basement for more than a century. It has. <laughs> oh All right, Trish. So um, how about how about we start right there with the future? So tell us a little bit about this 20 by 40 foot exact scale model of the 1876 Centennial Exposition. Uh, it is a remarkable diorama okay. that shows uh, the visitor uh, the in, most of the scale of what happened in 1876 when Philadelphia hosted the World's Fair in uh, recognition yeah. of our 100th birthday as a country. Interesting, I see it as the first global convening in Philadelphia. Mm. Ten million people came oh, to wow. the fair over a six-month period of time from mm. 37 countries. Wow. And the theme of the fair was, believe it or not, innovation and technology and the future. (laughs) I think we think we invented all those words, but it goes back to 1876. Um, And it was really a time of transition in the country, uh, dawn of the industrial age, moving Mm. through reconstruction, um, lots of great progress on the horizon, but lots of interesting challenges socially and culturally that as we looked at the model we felt were reflected today. Um, So the model's been in the basement for a long time. We call it the lower level. Uh, And it's massive in scale and tiny in perspective. And Mm -hmm. we couldn't figure out how to engage the visitor experience around this. Now, we are a children's museum. We're not a history museum, um, but uh, it is considered 
the second most historic artifact in the city after the Liberty Bell. Wow. Um, I was not an expert in the centennial or historical artifacts. I'm a nurse, so I had a bone up on a few things. Um, And as we observed over the past couple of years that I've been there as, as the CEO, the lack of visitor engagement, feedback from teachers saying we don't know how to talk to the kids around the model as they come through on the visitor experience, Um, And just through general observation, I mean, it's this massive piece of history that I would stand in the room and go, well, how is it relevant? What what are we Hmm. doing with it? Several years ago, Pew uh, gave us an advancement grant coming out of the bankruptcy. Um, And it was to really explore and understand the role of digital learning in a museum Hmm. Um, and to utilize digital learning experience as a way to enhance visitor engagement and the learning, not as a substitute for it. And as I looked at the model and what we were learning around digital capacity, I thought, oh, I need a drone in the model Hmm. to take some pictures and to tell us what's happening at the fair. Maybe we'll do a scavenger hunt, a host of other things. Hmm. Um, And really, that's kind of how our vision started. And where we landed after about a year of reflection and conversation was around a core question that the entire 5,000-square-foot gallery will now be reimagined around. And the question is, if you could change the world, Hmm. what would you create, discover, Hmm. invent, design? Hmm. What would the world, what would you become a mm-hmm. scientist, an mm-hmm. artist, an educator, an electrician, to make mm-hmm. that change happen. Mm-hmm. And what would the world look like then? Mm-hmm. What would a changed world look like then? And um, we've had a fabulously mm-hmm. wonderful time pondering this and creating curriculum um, that will actually um, serve up to kids in grades four. Uh, The fourth grade is when children in this state learn about Pennsylvania state history, but alas, they don't even teach the fair. Oh, really? So we have an opportunity there. But what has been fascinating in the week or so since we've gone public with the project is the number of grownups who'll text or email or LinkedIn me and say, "Uh, I got to come and see this. Yeah. Uh, I'm not four. I'm not in the fourth grade. Mm -hmm. I don't even have kids. Can I come? When will it be open for adults? (laughs) Uh, And we are a museum that is open for all. Yes. Um, We have a tagline for fun, for learning, for all. Um, And so I think we're going to have some pretty interesting opportunities as we reveal the the gallery next spring. Okay. So, Trish, you've said said a lot there. And let me try to picture this. So we've got a a large diorama mm-hmm. and I'm picturing was it was it um, created as sort of an a- architectural rendering of what the uh, centennial would look like when was it created it was actually modeled after uh, July 4th 1876 what happened that day at the fair um, and again remember like no social media, no yeah. real photography. I mean, there was photography, but not like we have now. No video. Um, and uh, it was created in the late uh, 1800s, so about 10 years after the fair oh. it was done. The model was originally bigger than it is now, but they had to cut it down a little bit to get it in the building. Uh, and it is behind glass. Um, 
I don't love the glass, and so that's part of why we're actually doing this experience. So there will be three digital immersive experiences that you can explore the model, learn about the fair, um, and and we are as a children's museum, as we have been doing for several years now under my leadership, mm. we are going to tackle um, social justice issues. Um, we've been doing a lot of that in in the museum in a responsible way and getting wonderful feedback and uh, reaction from yeah. our visitors, families, around the work that we're doing around fostering an environment of inclusion. That's great. So, Trish, you're helping me picture this now. So it's a, a large diorama that's behind glass, and the Please Touch Museum, the word touch, Correct. <laughs> right away, is a bit of a, um, gives you a challenge on how then to make this diorama engaging mm-hmm. for children because they can't touch it. Yeah, I can't even touch yeah, it, you know, because yeah. it's historic. It's, and... <laughs> so we can't touch this. Right. So then how do you create um, the opportunity for children to engage in an active way with the diorama while respecting that this is an art, you know, a, an artifact that's important to the history of Philadelphia and, in fact, the nation, <laughs> second only to the Liberty Bell? <laughs> Yeah, and I think the interesting thing is, uh, if we've done our homework right, we may be the only children's museum in the country that has a historic artifact that we are now going to engage and empower for learning. And I also think it's um, maybe this moment in time has a little more significance, although maybe not. Um, How does the past help inform people's thinking Mm -hmm. about the future? You can't ignore the past. Right. Right. Um, and you can use it as a way to promote dialogue. It has been fascinating in the prototyping we're doing, particularly when grandparents come in with grandchildren mm. and the conversations around neighborhood and community. Mm. So there is a, mm. an element in the exhibit that allows you to create your own community. Um, and it's kind of like a it's a big screen that uses uh, round disks that look like little hockey pucks. Mm-hmm. And you can build your community. You can add trees. You can add libraries. You can add community centers. You can add businesses. And as you move that around the screen, um, it changes that you understand about a happiness quotient. Mm -hmm. You understand about sustainability and community. Mm -hmm. Um, You understand what the economics are and when you've spent too much money and you don't have any more money. Um, And... We were also purposeful uh, when we designed the Build Your Community. Everybody thought we would design it around Billy Penn. Okay. But Mm -hmm. we didn't. Mm -hmm. Um, We reside in the Parkside neighborhood where the centennial occurred. Right. In a building that is one of only two buildings left standing from that period of time. And so when we brought our neighbors from Parkside in with their families to prototype it, they were totally wowed that the neighborhood is Parkside. Yeah. And it and it was no we value being part of this neighborhood. We're part of uh the f- the past and the future of this neighborhood. And actually Parkside grew out of the investment that the city and the country made in hosting the fair. Yeah. And if you would for listeners and you know, we have people all over the country, can you say a little bit about the building itself because it's I know from being a resident here and um, having visited the museum and driving past it, that it's a really impressive, impressive building. So could you say a little bit about your location? Memorial Hall was built in uh, 
the early 1870s uh, in the two-year run-up to the fair. It is one of the centerpiece buildings of the fair. 200 buildings were erected over about a two-year period of time uh, in preparation for the fair, including a small hospital, a post office, a, uh, you know, a rail station. Uh, there are only two buildings left, Memorial Hall, which is 110,000 square feet. The museum resides in about 60,000 square feet of it. Um, it is one of the finest examples of Beaux-Arts architecture in our city and maybe in the country. The scale is majestic. The dome is inspiring. And it's amazing to me when visitors come in, not even just for the first time, but when they come through the front door and then they come across the threshold into the um, main Hamilton Hall and they see that dome and the um, piece of art that is the torch from the Statue of Liberty. It's pretty awe-inspiring. Um, and we mm -hmm. use it even as an inspiration for our team. Um, we the morning of, of the anniversary of 9-11 every year, we take mm -hmm. a few moments in the lobby and we stand in front of the torch and we talk as a team about what it means to be engaging with families and young children to help them think about the future. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, so it has great inspiration and significance, not if you've been in the building just for the first time, but if you've been in the building hundreds of times. Oh, that's great. Let me remind our listeners that you are listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm Ann Greenhall, and I have the pleasure today of speaking with Trish Wellenbach, and she is the president and CEO of the Please Touch Museum here in Philadelphia. Now, since I'm flying solo and you'd like to bring your voice into the conversation, feel free to give us a call. Maybe you have a question for Trish about the Please Touch Museum, Learning Through Play. Please call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Trish, let's talk a little bit about the history of the Please Touch Museum. So can you tell us a little bit about its origins? Where did it begin? Uh, founded in Philadelphia in 1976 by Portia Spur, a Montessori educator mm -hmm. who, based on the Montessori methodology of learning, realized that in this city and in many other cities, there was not an environment in informal learning where children could learn through play and experiential learning. And she envisioned uh, what at the time was groundbreaking for a first museum for children design, uh, designed for children specifically under the age of seven. Now, over the years and the iteration, our audience has, you know, kind of gone up to ages nine and ten. And we can talk about that a little mm -hmm. bit. Uh, started out in a little, you know, yeah. maybe 2000 square feet in the Academy of Natural Sciences in a room, then moved to 21st Street. Yeah in the late 1990s, uh, realized that they needed more space. And through a thoughtful discernment process, decided to go big. And um, over a long period of time, there was some uh, investment in going down on the waterfront, down on Penn's Landing. Um, that project fell apart. Oh. Um, a lot of uh, investment was made in that project, um, and they were pretty far along. And Memorial Hall was what it was at the time, uh, really in, in difficult shape yeah. as a building. It was not really being preserved well. Um, it was a community asset in Parkside, but there was some risk uh, in the building and things like that. So the museum ended up there. It was an $80 million project opening in um, the fall of 2008. We all remember that year. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh. They took $60 million worth of bond debt out on the building to do the project. And, you know, when the economics were 
run uh, in 2006 and seven. It looked like that was a way to go um, to fund the work. Um, and then the world happened. Yeah. Um, and there's plenty of time to say what went wrong when. Uh -huh. um, but I don't I'm not a look back person except for the fact that a rear view mirror is small and helps me remember where we came from. And now, like, where do we need to go? Blame yeah. is not actually something that actually is productive for me or an organization, I think. Yeah. So over a period of time, the museum struggled. Uh, they had some leadership transition. It was difficult to figure out the strategy to retire the debt. It's very hard in philanthropy when a, an entity is up and running and moving forward to say, okay, well, we give us money to retire debt. You know, mm -hmm. uh, philanthropic partners want to invest mm -hmm. in the future of an organization. Um, 2013, they defaulted on the debt. Um, and then over a two-year period of time, the board really was very purposeful in figuring out what to do and how to do it. And um, then in the summer of 2015 made a decision to go into a chapter 11 um, with a consensual agreement with the bondholders so they knew where they were going and how they were getting out um, i was just on the sidelines as a interested citizen i had actually done some strategy work for them in 2011 and 12 hmm. um, but was not the ceo at the time um, i was asked to come in after some two prior jobs that I had where I did restructuring and, and bankruptcy work. Um, and the museum leadership called me and said, would I consider coming in? The CEO at the time was in an interim role and she was a Canadian citizen. She didn't want to renew her visa. She wanted to okay. go back to Canada in, in March, April of 2016. Would I come in and help? And then become the CEO. And um, I actually kind of said to them, you know, I'm a little tired. I've just done two bankruptcies. I'm not <laughs> sure I have another one in me. But I have to say, I, I, a long time ago, I thought that there was something really significant I could do in this city in a bigger way than I had. And I had to listen to my inner voice and say, you know, girl, this might be it. You might not know what you're doing, but, you know, you'll figure it out along the way. You'll put smart people at the table with you, which I like to do all the time. Mm. Um, and I took it on. And I, I am fond of saying I have the best job in the city. Um, <laughs> I make people happy every day. I may be the only business leader who's happy when children are crying when they leave their building because it means they want to come back. <laughs> That's great. Um, and I, I had the chance to work with a, an outstanding small but mighty board of six people, which mm. was all that was left in, in the fall of 2015. I came in in November of 15. And uh, in March of 2016, we successfully exited the bankruptcy on time, oh. on target. Oh, great. Um, retired the debt. I retired additionally about $1.7 million of unsecured credit, um, which the day we left the bankruptcy court, I had wooded down to about $350,000. Oh, you know, great. It's, oh. it's kind of cool when you can play that. Well, you don't want to be responsible for closing the Children's Museum card. So let's talk about what we owe you and, and figure out a way to kind of lower that number. Um, but that's when the work began. I mean, the bankruptcy was the easy part in a way. You oh. know, we had to raise $10 million in six months, and, and that took a little bit of work and required a vision and, and a real focus. Um, but I knew, and I've been public saying, you know, this, the bankruptcy was a process. Yeah. The rebuilding is the work. Oh. Trish, I have to jump in here uh, just to ask you a little bit. Can you talk, you said that you'd already settled two other bankruptcies. Can you just, you know, briefly say, what did you learn from those experiences that helped you when you were facing uh, 
the problem of addressing the bankruptcy bankruptcy in the please touch Dutch museum? I think the key is really having a vision. And when we retired the debt on the museum, many people said to me, like, what did you do? You know, they were trying for years to make the debt go away. And you raised $10 million in this city in like 12 weeks, Dresh. Like, how'd that work? And what I had to figure out, and I did figure it out pretty quickly, and it was I don't think it was intentional on my part, was I stopped talking about the debt, and mm. I started to talk about the future and the potential. And I wrote a white paper, and I shared it with some people in the city that I respect who have deep business acumen and are tough on the numbers. And I wrote the document and bolted on the financial future projections that we had, and people started to listen. And some people would say to me, okay, I'm not giving you a penny for the bondholders, Trish, but I'll give you some runway money. So the $10 million included eight to settle the bond debt and two in working capital. Okay. And so people had a choice in a way. Yeah. Um, and they could, you know, say, okay, I get it. And unless you get the bondholders after your back, you're not going to get to where you need to go. So I'm going to help you with that. You know, make no mistake, you know, $10 million came in, but eight plus walked out the door. I mean, we were yeah. just the stewards of all that money for about right. 48 hours. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've done terrific work. I mean, we have still had to, um, we still restructured the business heavily, took an additional $1 million of operating expenses out in the year, in the first year. Um, and we continually work on it. We are razor sharp on the balance sheet. Now, Trish, I'm going to just take a little bit of a digression here and then come back. And the reason I do this is I am a, an instructor here. I teach here. I teach the, uh, as part of the undergraduate leadership requirement called the leadership journey, and I have TAs who assist me. And yesterday, one of my TAs named Seema, Seema came to see me because she's working on an assignment in another class. In fact, a class uh, taught by none other than Adam Grant. Nice. And the assignment is to do a podcast, to do an interview, on any organizational topic you would like. And so she had an idea, and she wanted to run it by me to get a little bit of feedback. And the idea was to discuss not the glass ceiling, but rather a phenomenon called the glass cliff. (laughs) And the glass cliff is this notion that women often find themselves in leadership positions that men typically would find undesirable. And that they are often even sought after to take on those leadership positions. And so you now you've you've done three bankruptcies. <laughs> yes. <laughs> those are those are difficult challenges. Most people would look at that and say, Oh my gosh, do get do a bankruptcy. So I just love to, you know, for, for Seema's sake, and I'll report back to her when we meet on Monday, but for Seema's sake, you know, what what's your reflection on this notion of a woman woman coming in there and cleaning up <laughs> and setting things <laughs> right. This notion of the glass cliff. What do you think? Yeah, I've heard a lot of conversation about this and, and there's a lot of analysis around women coming in and CEOs and leadership roles when companies are distressed. And I, I actually take a little bit of exception. I don't think it's because the men can't do it. I think it's because the women know they can do it. <laughs> um, and, and I'm going to be very transparent, people who are listening, who know me. Okay, I'm sitting here in Huntsman Hall. I do not have an MBA. Okay, my undergraduate terminal degree is a degree in nursing from Boston College. Fabulous. That's it. 
And people don't believe me when I tell them I don't have an MBA. And they say, no, no, where did you get your MBA? And I'm like, I got it in the seat. I took jobs and I found opportunities where I would really stretch. And um, sometimes I succeeded, sometimes I didn't, and that's okay too. And the ones that I didn't do so well, and I learned a lot about myself and my capabilities. And, and I'm a big believer in, you know, hanging out in your comfort zone is easy. You know, you can mail that in. It's when you get out of your comfort zone that you really discover what your true potential is. And it's okay to be a little fearless. You need to be. Um, and I think, you know, I, I find it fascinating, this kind of oddity that they say that, you know, women undersell themselves and they want to make sure that they check every box on the, you know, requirement page. I'm pretty bad at that. I have taken jobs. I've only been able to check two of the 12 boxes. Um, and I think it's fascinating that they say that women take the messy stuff. Um, and so if you're taking the messy stuff, you're clearly probably not qualified for it. So <laughs> I got to do a study on that. Tell Adam Grant to call me. We have to look at that. Um, and, you know, I think it's there's probably some truth to it, um, but that's OK. Um, you know, fixing problems is something that I think has great value. Mm. Um, and if you can save a company, an institution, um, an organization, reposition it for growth and strength in the future, that there's a tremendous amount to be proud of in that. Um, and I've been able to do that a couple times, so I'm glad for that. That's great, Trish. Well, um, one of my pet projects is uh, my TAC Minos is perception of leadership. You know, what what picture do we have in our mind's eye? And my uh, quick thought in response to her was that one of the perceptions is, and this is actually in the literature, especially in the ethics liter literature, that women are perceived to be more ethical. And so on the positive side, that if we need someone to set things straight, that there could be a, an implicit association, an unconscious bias towards selecting a woman. And then on the flip side, you're just, you know, on the, maybe on the negative perception, if it is, I'll put that in quotes, mm -hmm. that women are particularly good at doing housekeeping, both in the home and in the organization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, but I love your comment about the opportunity that poses as a stretch experience. And what a great chance to get out there and try and if you fall on your nose okay you fall on your nose as you said that's okay mm -hmm. but you learn a lot and you know what you just might succeed so you got an MBA in the classroom of life rather than in the uh, is that fair to say it is now I'm not advocating that you shouldn't go to Wharton and get your MBA <laughs> yes. just want to be clear Let's be clear I'm right. a mother of an alum I'm, I got it <laughs> yeah. I know how critically important it is but I come from a very earlier generation of women who didn't necessarily get MBAs when I was going to school yeah so um, can you talk a little bit then about your career path yeah so and in fact, I'd love to know you, uh, where did you studied at Boston College? Mm -hmm. And did you get your nursing degree from Boston College? I did uh, in the 1970s, and I came to Philadelphia in the late 1970s. I did not know a soul. So it was the 1970s in Philly. Frank Rizzo was the mayor. Ah. Philly was famous kind of sort of for Rocky, and we had about three cool restaurants. The city has yeah. changed a lot. Um, I did not know a person here. Um, and it, Why uh, did you come? Uh, because I'm the oldest of five children, Irish Catholic, and we're very irreverent and a little bit tough on each other. And 
I was home at Thanksgiving. I had a couple job offers, one in New York. I grew up in the New Jersey suburbs of Manhattan. So mm-hmm. New York, I learned how to drive on the streets of Manhattan. So that was like, that was <laughs> home to me. Um, and I had a job offer in New York and I had a job offer in Atlanta at Grady. And my middle brother was at the table and he said, oh, it's cool to go to, you know, New York or Atlanta, but, you know, who would go to Philly? And I'm like, (laughs) oh, maybe. I don't know. So I went back to Boston and I met with my advisor. And my first career was as a high risk labor and delivery nurse. Fabulous job. We can talk about how that gave me the skill set that I have right now. Yeah. Um, And I went to my advisor and I said, so best labor and delivery unit in, in Philadelphia. And she said, why? And I said, I'm thinking about it. And she told me Pennsylvania Hospital, and she said, you're gonna, you could go to Cornell, Trish. You're, you're, you're going to walk away from a job in New York? I said, I might. And I came to Philly and uh, interviewed. Pennsylvania Hospital is at the time do, was at the time doing 6,000 deliveries a year, one of the premier labor and delivery institutions in the city and the state, and still is. I'm very proud of my years there. And I walked in, and... I got a third of the way into the unit and I said, oh, no, this is going to be my home and I'm going to get this job. I was 21 Um, and they didn't hire new graduates in labor and delivery. Uh, They told me, you want to work in labor and delivery here? This is a very difficult unit to work in. Go work in the nursery or the postpartum unit in a year or two. You can put in for a transfer. And I didn't really want that. Um, I had spent a summer at Duke uh, working in their labor and delivery unit between my junior and senior year. And I really wanted to be in that Mm -hmm. in that environment. And I went back to Boston and uh, March came around and I said to my roommate, oh, you know what, I think I'm just going to call Pennsylvania Hospital. I'll take the job in postpartum and I'll figure out how to work my way into labor and delivery. Now, remember, it was the 1970s, no cell phones, emails, none of that. I go to class, I come back, she's watching TV and she says to me, "Uh, Pennsylvania Hospital called, they must have returned your call. I'm like, I didn't call them. Mm. And she said, well, the nurse recruiter called you. And I called her back, and she said, well, you know that crotchy old head nurse, Rita Morris? She's decided she's going to take a chance on you. And she said, she is tough, so I wouldn't disappoint her, but you've got the job. <laughs> I was the first um, non-Philadelphia-trained BSN new graduate to be hired into Pennsylvania Hospital Labor and Delivery Unit in the late 1970s. And... Uh, she took a chance on me. Oh, that's and, great. Um, you know, I'm fond of saying I went from the labor and delivery suite to the C-suite. Yes. <laughs> okay. It took a few Trish. decades, guys. <laughs> but now, Trish, say a little bit about what skills you learned in the labor and delivery suite that have been essential to the C-suite. First of all, you learn how to listen a lot. Mm. Um, You learn how to triage. Uh, You know, you could walk into the unit and there'd be no one in labor. And eight hours later, you could have delivered 15 babies. Yeah. It's coming fast. Mm -hmm. You got to learn how to prioritize. Mm. You know, I was 21 years old telling people who'd been practicing OB for 21 years what to do. You know, that was kind of fascinating. Um, And in those days, you know, we, I don't even think we had pneumatic tubes then. You know, you had to run to the lab. You know, I'd work night shift. It would be me, maybe a couple of LPNs and some aides. And we did a lot of good work together. And, and we, you know, they still do brilliantly. Um, and it just was a little bit of trial by fire. Um, I think you learn how to take a deep breath and you can't fall apart in the middle of um, what could be perceived as a crisis. I, I also think, uh, you know, as a labor and delivery nurse, you're at the bedside with people who are experiencing excruciating pain and uncertainty 
And you learn this skill to look them in the eye and say, take a deep breath. Trust me, mm-hmm. the outcome's going to be fine. Mm-hmm. We're going to get through this together. You and me <laughs> together. We're doing this. Not unlike going Mom. through vacancy. Yeah, correct. <laughs> we're getting there. And guess what happens on the other side? Now, at Pennsylvania Hospital, sometimes the outcomes were not as positive as we would want them to be. But, you know, it it really taught me a lot um, in, in the early stages of my career. I also think there's something unique about nurses in general mm. um, and the opportunity that nurses um, have when they're learning. So you're 18, 19 years old, you're already in the clinical setting and you're standing at the bedside. Someone's getting difficult news, you're witnessing death. You know, your frontal lobe isn't even fully developed yet. And I adore physicians. My daughter-in-law is a physician, a pen trained physician. Um, But you know, she might have been 25 or 26 before she did that. And you're at a different stage in your life, yeah. developmentally, socially, intellectually. And yeah, as scary as that was, it gave me a set of skills that have served me to this day. Yeah. Do you think it also gave you um, profound perspective? It does. And I think it brings a level of empathy because nurses are there 24-7 and a different level of empathy than physicians have. Mm. Um, Both are critically important to the patient and the family. Um, But, you know, at two in the morning, Mm -hmm. you know, you need to dig deep to get a family, a patient through what they're going through. Um, So... I learned a lot in that period of time, and uh, and I, ca- I carry that to today. So, Trish, why did you leave? Um, I, you know, I started a family. We were quite fortunate in my family situation that I did not have to work mm-hmm. early uh, when my children were young. My husband traveled a lot, and um, we, we believed that one parent had to be home. Mm. And so I made the decision that I, I wouldn't go back to work. Plus... You know, shift work and working in hospitals long, arduous, and yeah. we, we had moved to the suburbs, and there's all sorts of reasons. And I sometimes think life does these things, and then I, I did take 10 years off and, wow. and had to figure out how to go back in. Um, and when my oldest got to be around 10, I thought, oh, you know, in a minute and a half, he's going to be 18, and what am I going to do then? And so I started a journey back in, um, and again two women were really remarkable in coaching me and have influenced my life in ways that they don't even know um, because of what they did for me and at that time and helping me figure out, you know, how to find another job. And, you know, I started out running small nonprofits. I didn't even know how to read a balance sheet. Um, And in my first job, they had a fabulous accountant and I called them up and I said, Andrew, okay, I just got this job. And you know, I don't even like to balance my checkbook, so <laughs> you got to help me. And you, I got, I'm like in kindergarten, teach me everything I need to know. And I'm brutal on the numbers. Um, and, you know, now I've chaired audit committees of, of companies. Um, and I've done, you know, I've walked organizations through bankruptcies and things like that. So um, sometimes I think if you don't learn it in the classroom, you maybe pay a little more attention. I don't know. Mm-hmm. You you don't feel uncomfortable saying what you don't know. I, I don't yeah. know what it is, yeah. but I got there. And I, I listen, there were really smart people at the table who helped me. And I listened to, I mean, when I got an opportunity to work on the orchestra bankruptcy, I mean, mm-hmm. Rich Worley was the board chair. I mean, I learned so much from Rich and, and people often ask me who I think some of the most remarkable leaders are in the city. And I, I do cite Rich and, and what he did and how he led. And 
he didn't get it all right, and mm-hmm. he was okay with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but he he had this understanding of the sacred trust that he was given. Oh. Um, <laughs> but he also knew, as an economist, what he had to do, yeah. you know, to get the business level set and, and yeah. ready for the future. So, mm. so I'm just curious now: were those nonprofits that you moved into were they health related? Uh, early on health. So I did. I ran an organization that did uh, supportive care services for people with cancer and their families. Um, and then uh, did that for a while. Then I took a break. Uh, I went into private industry for about two years. You know, you talk about what do you succeed or fail at. I actually don't think I failed at that, but I wasn't fabulous at it. And um, But I needed to try. What was the role, Trish? I was the managing director for strategy and business development at a, a about a $35 million a year company that um, did architectural design, project management, and hospitals and health systems. So I knew the space, mm-hmm. um, but I went from being in rooms with lots of women to being rooms with mostly men huh. um, and, and learned a lot about how you navigate a different world. Um, and, and when I left that job, I, I had great respect for the CEO, and I left the job. It was a mutual parting, and, and Jack said to me, you know, Trish, go be a CEO. <laughs> you think like a CEO. <laughs> you great. are a CEO. Um, oh. And he had built and run this very complicated big business that had offices in Dubai and China. Mm. And I thought, oh, okay, I guess. Let me try. Um, then I did some consulting work for about six years. Lots of different businesses, mm. um, lots of different nonprofits. Then I got my toe in the water around arts and culture, education. Mm. I was doing strategy work and and, uh, governance work and board development work in those businesses. And then I got hired in to come in and um, I was at a transition in my personal life and someone called me and asked me to come and run a school for children with autism. Talk about learning. On the job. Um, And that was my second bankruptcy that I did. Oh, wow. Let me remind everyone that you're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm Ann Greenhall, and I'm speaking with Trish Wellenbach, President and CEO of the Please Touch Museum. So, Trish, I love that um, your former supervisor, Jack, told you to go be a CEO. You know, what a... You know, sometimes when we have to go in different directions, we know something isn't right, whether you're a supervisor or your employee. How wonderful to frame that (laughs) in such a positive way of what the potential and the future is rather than, Trish, you're just not right for this particular, you know, for this particular job. Yeah. (laughs) So great. So let's talk a little bit about your role as CEO. How do you how do you take up that role? I know Mike would want me to ask. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, one of the things that I focus on heavily as a leader is my level of presence in the organization. Um, And that is physical presence, intellectual, emotional. I do it all. Um, And I also do a lot of listening. One of my taglines is, you know, to never be the smartest person in the room, never be the only person in the room. So I like to have teams around me that are that are going to bring issues to me with solutions, not just a problem, but come with a solution, some recommendations. Um, I can't be the expert in everything. Mm. Um, I'm really good at running complicated businesses. I'm really good at pulling out the best in people. Mm. Um, 
can I figure out how to design a children's exhibit? No, but I have a very good design eye. So when our director of exhibits is working on things with our uh, education team and the rest of the team, I'll say, well, think about it this way. What about this? So the mm-hmm. fact that I'm not deeply immersed in the business, in, in the training of how to become an exhibit designer, allows me to ask them provocative, respectful questions. Um, and I think that has gotten me a lot of credibility at the museum. I like to lead with mm-hmm. intent and purpose. Um, and we were a pretty beat up organization when we came out of bankruptcy. I probably made it sound a little too rosy. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a lot of work to do. Yeah. Um, there was a lot of unhappy customers, a lot of unhappy donors, a lot of unhappy partners. Um, we had not done a great job of stewarding our mission mm-hmm. and really articulating our value proposition um, in the entire ecosystem of Philadelphia as a regional asset and destination, Mm. but more importantly, as part of the fabric of what is going to be needed to support children and families from the earliest ages so they are positioned to succeed in the classroom and in life. Mm, Very good. Trish, just let me highlight one point that I think is uh, valuable for listeners, and I'm thinking of myself and my students as well. you know, it can be unusual to have a CEO who has a nursing degree running a museum mm-hmm. <laughs> for children. I know that our president and CEO of the Philadelphia Free Library, I believe, is the first CEO who, who hadn't had a library degree. <laughs> Correct. So um, now as an educator, one of my uh, passions and hobby horses is the value of a broad education, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, getting getting the skills, uh, the technical skills, but also getting those, what usually thought of a liberal arts schools, creative thinking, reflection, and combining the two. So could you speak to a little bit to your education and how it informed your ability to be the CEO of the Please Touch Museum? Yeah, so I've had a lifetime of learning. Um, And when I think about all the roles that I have had, um, they have all prepared me for this job. Yeah. So spending two years in architectural design and planning institution helps me understand how to deal with contractors and outside vendors and what design looks like and what good design looks like. Um, Running a children's, uh, a school for children and young adults with autism um, and severe emotional disturbance that come from some of the deep, deepest challenge communities in our city where 85% of the students mm-hmm. were um, deeply below the federal poverty level made me aware of what was happening in this city mm-hmm. in this time. My stint on the board of the United Way helped me understand the value of education mm-hmm. and what education can do for an individual. And it doesn't have to be... a platinum-coated education. Mm -hmm. It can be a really good vocational education. Mm -hmm. You know, we need all types of people in this world to propel it forward. Um, And I think that I have have seen what happens when the grown-ups come together and figure out how to responsibly invest in children and communities. And I believe that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know that there are always going to be challenges in a city, in a community. But if I can help move the needle for one family, one community, that's a good thing. Um, you know, when I ran the school, I had to close an entire business line and 
lay off half the workforce. Mm -hmm. In a 48-hour period of time, I met with every employee face-to-face. Oh, boy. (laughs) Whether they were staying or going. And I was all over the city. And sometimes I met with three people, and sometimes I met with 20 people. They saw me. Mm -hmm. Because behind every one of those individuals that I was letting go was a family, a neighborhood. Um, Behind the ones that were staying was the guilt. Like, why am I not going? Why do I stay? So it just, you know... I don't know. Maybe that's a level of empathy that I was born with. And under, I don't know. I, I, I can't answer that. And maybe cultivated as well by your education and also your experience back again to the labor and delivery, yes. to the labor and delivery <laughs> nurse. All right. Again, and I'm channeling Mike here a little bit. You mentioned earlier uh, a board. So can you talk about your um, your board and your relationship to to the board as CEO? Yeah, they're my best advisors. Mm-hmm. Um, they they keep me sharp. Um, I want them to do that. I work for them. I am their employee, (laughs) which is important. Um, And there has to be a level of mutual trust. Um, And I am very transparent with the board. I think it's critically important. Um, I serve on a lot of boards. And so I think my organization and my board benefits from that because we prepare our board at the museum really well for any issue, question, board meeting, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Our board recruitment process is extremely thorough for a $10 million a year business, Um, but I take it very seriously. They Mm -hmm. are the ultimate stewards and fiduciaries of the organization. Mm -hmm. Um, I serve at their pleasure and at their invitation, Um, and they need to be informed in an appropriate way as an advisor Mm -hmm. and as a consultant, Um, and I do understand clearly management's role and the board's role, and I am Mm -hmm. as articulate with the board as I am with my management team when they're starting to move down issues that are board's issues. And I will say to them, no, that's where the board has to weigh in. Our job is to prepare them and inform them. Mm. Their job is to advise. And then our job is to move forward. Can, can you give an example of that? That's such a nice nuanced point. Um, so uh, let me think about that a little bit. Um, when we got when we went big and bold on the Pride initiative, and we got a lot of feedback from the community, um, we went through a clear process internally. This was a management decision. We wanted to do this. It tied right to the strategy. It fit. It was not um, pandering. We, we did everything right. So I didn't take that to the board. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then when we went public with it, and all of a sudden within minutes, you know, hundreds and hundreds of uh, comments on Facebook. Now the board had to be bred in. Yeah. Um, And so the team came together. We called a board meeting. We did it by phone. We gave them material. I talked them through our decision making. I talked them through the strategy of how we were going to manage the weekend. Got their feedback. A couple questions around security. Were we okay? What did we think? And then the management team heard that. And then we went back. We retold the plan. And the weekend came off seamlessly. I didn't even stay in Philadelphia for the weekend. I had travel plans, and I felt the board had been informed. The management team understood where the board wanted us to be, and we were in lockstep. So that's how you do it, Um, and it takes a lot of experience. Yeah, it would, because the roles, goals, and responsibilities have to be really clear. And it might be one thing to sort of read them on paper, but to actually live it and know what belongs here and belongs there. Can you, can you speak to um, maybe when you think back on your on your career, your life, uh, was there, 
you know, a particular moment that just didn't go the way that you had hoped. Um, you know, I don't, I don't want to call it a failure ne- necessarily, but just something that didn't pan out the way that you'd hoped. And what, what was the learning that you gleaned from that? It is a board discussion, too. Oh, great. And um, it was a failure that I flipped. Um, and this was when I was running the wellness community for cancer support services. Uh, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollar budget, early 2000s. We didn't have a lot of money. We were all philanthropically funded, no third party revenue. Um, and Jeff Barry, who was a brilliant producer uh, in this city, found out about our work and was deeply intrigued, had a personal experience with cancer. And he wanted to make a commercial about us, mm. about the organization, a professionally directed like commercial. Uh, we had a quick turnaround time because he had a window of opportunity that he could donate his services. It was probably about $150,000 worth of donated services. And I needed about 10 in cash to pay off some, uh, we had to pay some bills related to craft services and things like that. Um, I thought it was a no brainer. Yeah. I did a conference call with our executive committee and they said, no, now $10,000 in our budget was a lot of money. It wasn't allocated. So I was really going to them for an allocation and, I was like, I hung up the phone and I'm like, oh, you screwed that up, girl. Like, <laughs> how'd that go? You know, you, you're bringing a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of in-kind. You only need $10,000 in cash. Like, how did that happen? So I was pretty upset and I thought, okay, well, I got to figure this out. What did I do wrong? And then I went over my notes and the materials and I'm like, okay, you prepared the board not the way they should have been prepared. Oh, okay. You didn't make the case well enough. Yeah. You didn't make it easy for them to say yes. Yes, right. I called the board chair a couple hours later, uh, Keith Morgan, and I said, Keith, I'm really sorry. I didn't use the board's time well. I'm going to ask for 10 minutes. Oh, great. Tomorrow. I'll be ready. I'm going to send out a document tonight. If you give me the 10 minutes, I'd like one more whack at it. Great. I retooled the materials, got on the phone, stayed to the 10 minutes, got the money. Fabulous. Oh, great. So one takeaway there is just preparation. Preparation. <laughs> you want to know, know your how, audience. Everyone's, how everyone's going to vote, as they say. Very good. Well, Trish, uh, hard to believe, but our time together is coming to a close. But before it does, uh, I want to ask you how you can just let listeners know more about the Please Touch Museum. You can come to our website at pleasetouchmuseum.org. You can come and visit us. You don't need to have a child. You can come and experience the museum without a little person. We do put a little Larry uh, lanyard around you that says visitor, um, <laughs> oh, so we know that you're great. not, you know, kind of, you know, <laughs> wandering. Um, and we would love, we we love visitors, and we love to tell the story. And I, I hesitate to say this, but I am a very open and available CEO, so you can find me. Oh. Um, Wharton students can reach out, and and if they want to chat with me, email me. It's my commitment to give back to the future leaders of the country and our city and our region. So don't feel shy if you have a question that you didn't call in for. You can you can email. You can find me on the website. It's pretty transparent. Oh, Trish. Oh, well, you know what? I'm definitely going to talk to my TA SEMA <laughs> and see if I can put her in touch with you because I know she would love to have a conversation with you about the glass cliff. <laughs> yes, I would be delighted. Okay. Well, listeners, thank you so much for joining us today on Leadership in Action, Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. A really hearty and heartfelt thank you to Trish Wellenbach, President and CEO of the Please Touch Museum. Thank you so much, Trish, for being here. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 